This morning we'll be reading from uh, 1 Peter 2. I'll start with um, verses uh, 4 to 12, and then I'll carry on with verses 21 to 25. Um, If you've got a church Bible with you, uh, the page is 1,218. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises to him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you have not received mercy, but you have now received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Moving on to verse 21. Uh, to this we are called, because Jesus, sorry, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they, were, when they held their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Thank you, Becky. There's a few times in my life I've had to buy a car. I've been given a few few rotten ones, uh, but I've had to buy a car a few times, I've had to buy a house a few times, and, and when you're doing something like this, a big purchase, you need to do due diligence, due diligence, you need to look under the hood, you need to kick the tires, you need to go up in the loft, you need to check the guttering, all that sort of stuff. Uh, in the month of January, we're going through our church's values, we're looking in the guttering, we're looking to see if the boiler works. We're looking to see if the engine, if there is an engine underneath the bonnet, all that sort of stuff, so that if you're around us for a while, you will know why we do what we do. You'll also know why we don't do certain things, because we have certain values that means we do some things and we won't do some other things. And, and they can be summarized with these three words, word, community, and mission. We've looked at the first two ones, gospel, We've looked at the second one, community. I'm going to slip one in rather sneakily that sums me up, really, between community and mission. And that is because it's Tear Fund Sunday. How does the church, the global church, 
relate to the world? How does the church relate to the world? How does it interface? How does it interact? What is the church's imperative and responsibility because of the gospel? Do we retreat? Do we get angry? Do we get involved? What do we do? This passage from the pen of Peter has a lot of, for us to listen and understand. Verse 9, for example. Who are the church? Is it an institution? Is it the Church of England? Is it uh, centred on the Catholic Church? If we limit that to Rome under the uh, leadership of the Pope. Um, when people see the institution of the church, what do they have in mind? I wonder if it's this, verse 9. But you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. If we uh, understand that sentence, if we have it embedded, implanted into our hearts, that has the power to change our understanding of what the church is and who we are to be forever. Um, it tells us who the church is, this passage. It tells us how we should relate to the world. It tells us where do we get the power from that Richard and Helen spoke about to do this. It's a great vision that God has. And he has all the power and resources we need as well to fulfill that. But firstly, what is the church? Who is the church? What is the church to be? That's what I want to think about first of all. What is the church? I want to think quickly because we recovered, or we, we, we covered some of this territory last week from the book of Isaiah, but what is the church? Who is it to be as we look into our telescope? Verse 5 of 1 Peter 2 says this, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. I thought of this last week from uh, Isaiah 56. This term spiritual house is absolutely loaded. I've got some picture of some bricks behind me, and this picture of construction um, is one of interdependence. That's the, the real key image, not of bricks and mortar, but of living stones. It's an image that Peter uses to describe people and how people interact one another. But it's not just a people-centric image. If you look at uh, sentence five, it says, you are living stones. You're being built into a spiritual house. This is a house where God lives. This is a house where God has come to dwell by his Holy Spirit, his, his Shekinah glory, the glory, the very glory of God. Not just an Indiana Jones, uh, sort of Steven Spielberg's imagination. This is the glory of God living, not in a physical place, but in human hearts. And as they come together and as they worship together and as they live together, they are interdependent. They rely on one another. Where Christians come together, regardless of the color of their skin or their age or stage of life, God's glory is seen when men and women, boys and girls, come together to form a spiritual house where he lives and dwells. What a great claim. It's always plural with one exception in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, you have the same sentiment, the same concept. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And that's one place in the whole of the New Testament where it's singular. And we need to hear that as Westerners. Because as Westerners, we always think singularly. We always think, what's in it for me? We always think of me in my small corner and you in yours. But the New Testament knows so little of that. It's a corporate entity, one of interdependence. It's uh, for all you grammarians out there. Verse 5 is a present 
progressive. What does that mean for all us normal people? It means that God is doing something and it's ongoing action. God has done something and it's still, uh, there's still repercussions like a stone in a still water. God is at work building his people one upon another. But the image of brickwork is important. The image of people living interdependently is significant. There's uh, one stone and above it there are two or three interdependent stones. And if you were playing Jenga, maybe if in your teenage years or whether it's Christmas time, kapow, there we go. If you're playing Jenga, you know what it's like. If you're crafty, there's someone here called Reuben who will remain non-anonymous anymore. When you play this with him, it's his aim to make it as hard as possible for the next person. And he does that by pulling out one of the pieces and then twisting it through 45 degrees. So the whole shape is always twisted. He's worked out a formula so that this is more difficult for the next person. Is this true? It is true. Never play against him. He's yet to be defeated. But you get the picture, whether you think of Jenga or whether you think of a house, whether you think of a, a building site with a bricklayer, putting one brick upon each other, putting mortar in between. When you take out one beneath, the ones above are far less stable. And the one that is you, a living stone, you are needed by those around you. You are needed by those above you. You are needed by those beneath you, so to speak, in the image. So let me ask you a question. If you were to be taken out, if you were to be removed, sticking with Jenga, if you were that living stone, that living brick, if you were to be removed, would anybody notice if you stopped coming to church, if life group uh, was no longer a priority in your life, if you stopped sharing, if you stopped being honest, if you stopped giving your time and emotions and resources, if you stopped sharing and opening up your home and offering practical help, we are to share everything in this image. We are to live interdependently. And yet we struggle to do this in the Western world because we think church is about us. You can know God individually, but you will never know him to the same degree as if you're part of a living reality of a church. Because I need you, and I think in some way you need me, to tell me where I'm going wrong, to share with me your joys and sorrows. We are to be a living entity, living stones being built into a spiritual house. Being a Christian is more than having an individual quiet time. You can get to know God in part that way. But you need other Christians to knock off the rough edges of your character, to share you fresh insights that they've seen and been the heartaches they have. It's an African saying, it takes a village to raise a child. It's a picture of a whole community needed to, to add in the wisdom of grandparents and the mistakes that have gone before and to help and support parents. It's hard. It takes a village to raise a child. It takes the church to raise a Christian. And that's what Peter's saying. You're living stones. You're being built into a spiritual house. It's a picture of interdependency. It's a picture of a collective, of a spiritual house, of a spiritual village that is needed to raise each one up in the most holy faith. Now, having said that, that's a quick point from last week, but Peter says it too. If that's who we are, if that's who the church is, what the church is, who we are as a, an entity, how do we relate to the world? How do we relate to the world? That's where Peter goes to next. And it's a tension. It's a tension that the church has struggled with, um, well, just about since it was born. 
Um, let's look at it. There are these three dangers in any uh, time, in any culture, and that is to blend in. I don't want to stick out. It's easier for me just to put on cultural clothes so that I fit in. Every teenager struggles with that. So does every adult. It's easy to say, oh, the world has gone to the dogs. It makes me so angry. I'm just going to vent. I'm just going to be a red-faced person. I'm infuriated at everything that's happening. But equally, it's easy just to withdraw. The world's gone to the dogs. I'm not going to get angry. I'm going to retreat. I'm going to go and live a monastic lifestyle. I'm going to go and be a hobbit somewhere. A Christian version, of course, without the hairy feet. Here are three dangers that the church has struggled in every single generation, in every culture, in every part of God's globe. These dangers of being enculturated, blending in so there's no difference and no one at work knows that you're a Christian. No one at school knows that you're a Christian. I just get angry. I'm just an angry person. There's nothing good in the world. It's all gone to the dogs. I'm just going to find it a lot easier if I just retreat to the Outer Hebrides and then I can live for Jesus there with no one else beside me. What does the Bible have to say to that? Verse 11 and 12 of 1 Peter 2. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers or foreigners and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter is calling us to an astounding balance. It's almost like a kind of a Houdini act that the church can fall into equal and opposite dangers at any time. But look at this phrase, alias and strangers, uh, from sentence 11. You may not blend in, says Peter. That's not an option. Don't put on the cultural clothes of the first century or the 21st century. There's got to be something different about you because of who you are. Don't be someone you're not. Don't pretend to be someone who you think you should be. Be who you are, Christian friend. Be who you are. Now, Peter's talking to Greeks living in Greek cities and Romans living in the Roman Empire. And yet he's saying, be who you are, where God has put you, because God has called you to be someone different. Don't be who you're not. What do I mean? Your identity is to be seen, but you're not someone passing through equally. You're, a, you're not someone just with a passport that says that you have a new identity. You're a foreigner, but you're also an alien. But you're not a passing through. There was uh, someone in the first century, uh, a wonderful historian with a wonderful name called Suetonius. And he said, these Christian, this Christian bunch, they're a new sort of human. They're a different sort of species. Now, why would he say that? He said that because Christians weren't keeping their religion private. They were living who they were. They were living differently in the first century. This is how. It is a list. Christians did not go to the bloodthirsty sports. They didn't want to go to the gladiatorial feasts. They couldn't support the wars of Caesar. They couldn't be part of his army. Christians in the first century were against abortion. They were against infanticide. If a newborn was not the gender you wanted, you could dispose of it in the Roman world. And the Christians said, no, we will not do that. Christians wanted to empower women. They wanted to do it in uh, Western Africa. They wanted to do it in the first century as well, where women were subjugated and oppressed. Christians said, no, we want to empower and honour women. They wanted to stand against sex outside of marriage. They wanted to stand against same-sex practices. They wanted to care radically for the poor. 
They wanted to mix together with people from different ages and classes. They wanted to give their money away. And here's the most offensive of all. They believed in a pluralistic society that Jesus Christ was the only way to God. He was the only saviour. Greeks and the Romans, they all had their own convictions that there were gods everywhere. You can worship who you want to. They were polytheists. There are many gods. They were pantheists, gods in everything. And Christianity came along and said, no. Everything we do, honouring women, giving money to the poor, honouring the marriage bed with sex inside of marriage, Jesus is the only way to salvation. Jesus is the only way to God. That's what motivates how we live. That's because we are new people. And Peter says that makes you an alien. And guess what, Christian friend? We're still aliens 20 centuries later. We're still to stick out. We're not to be aggressive. We're not to retreat. We're not to rage. We're not to blend in. We're still aliens when you live out the gospel values. Verse 11, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers. This is a technical phrase that means in the original language, you're not a tourist, you're not a visitor, you're permanently staying, but you're different. Very important. It means that you've come permanently. You're different, you're a stranger, you're an alien, you're a foreigner, you're a stranger, but you're remaining where God has placed you. There's a great balance that's there in sentence 12. We're not to blend in and we're not to attack and be aggressive and speak unwisely and uncarefully. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Good deeds, like the work of Tear Fund in the New Testament, does not just mean having good moral behaviour. You're a goody two-shoes. You do what Jesus says. You don't do what he says not to do. It means doing action. It means living out your faith. It means being a person that God has made you to be. And that means when it comes to the outsiders, they will always have this blend. You will be accused, but at the same time, you will be recognised for someone who is different when you don't retreat and when you're not aggressive, when you speak carefully and when you speak wisely. But right in the middle, sorry if there's a math lesson here, right in the middle of this Venn diagram, this is Chris's bed and brother, he loves this, Right in the middle of this Venn diagram, there is Christians to speak wisely in what is called common grace. In every society, in every culture, since the world was created, God has made men and women in his image. Culture has expressed different values in different ways. But in every single culture, there is something we can say that is a good piece of music. That's a wonderful piece of art. That's a great meal. That's a great TV show. That's a great film. We can say something in God's world that people who are not Christians have made and we can say that's still a good thing. We cannot say that all the world has gone to the dogs. It's called common grace. But people who live out the Christian faith will be accused of doing things for the wrong reasons, but at the same time they will be recognised for who they are. Let me give you an example. We all live different. I'm not sex obsessed. It's been two weeks. I've said sex a lot. I'm not sex obsessed, I assure you. But think about what Christians say and believe about sex and family. If you say what, we, if what the Bible says about sex and family and gender, there'll be lots of opportunities for Christians to speak not very carefully, not very wisely. We need to speak wisely and faithfully and carefully. And we will be accused. 
when we say what the Bible says about those topics. But think what the Bible says also about forgiveness and turning the other cheek and kindness. When we say what the Bible says in that area, we'll be recognised as different as well. But our culture will want to hear a lot more of what we have to say about forgiveness than what we have to say about gender and identity. How regressive, how small-minded, how last century, how and so on. But the whole point of the book of 1 Peter is to speak carefully, to speak wisely, to be who you are. But when you are who you are, you will be accused of wrongdoing. You will be recognised as different. Don't freak out when people laugh at you. Don't get upset when people marginalise you. That's how it will always be when you stand up for Jesus in the first century and the 21st century. And we need to be prepared. It's an incredible vision of balance. No retreat, no unwise engagement with hostility, but a faithful presence in Epsom and Yule, in the Ivory Coast, to the ends of the earth. How do you keep your balance, though? It's not about core strength, thankfully, or I would fall. Where's the power to live like this, to speak wisely, to engage with wisdom, and yet to remain faithful? Where do you get the power from? Verse 4. Peter says, you need to come to him. You need to come to him. You need to come to the living stone. The way to be a faithful presence in any community, in any society, in any workplace, on any train leaving uh, West Yule or Epsom early in the morning is you need to come to him, the living stone. It's the image of building once again. And there's three parts here. Come to him, the living stone. The first thing is you need to recognise that all of us have a cornerstone. All of us have a cornerstone. Look at uh, sentence seven. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, the cornerstone. What this is saying is that every person is building on something or someone. And Peter is saying, here's the person you should build your life on. Here's the person you should build your life around. Here's the image of the cornerstone. When your cornerstone is in correct alignment, the whole building is secure, says 1 Peter. And every builder, especially the Egyptians, they knew how to build. You have a cornerstone that your life is built upon, that every other value is measured around. And if you're not building your life on Jesus, you still have a cornerstone, but it's something else. Now, how do you find out what you're building your life upon? There's God's way of how to do it, and then there's our way of how to do it. This is how you know what you're building on. When the chips are down, when uh, struggles come, when life is going wrong, where do you lean to? Where do you, what do you lean on? Where do you run to? What do you think about? When things are going wrong in your week, do you say, well, that's okay. I'm a good parent. That part of my life has gone wrong, but that's okay. I've been a success in this area. That's okay, but this was a great success when I did that. That's okay. I'm a moral person. That's okay. I'm a spiritual person. Where does your mind go when life gets hard? That would reveal your cornerstone, something you defend, something you get very precious about, something that you wake up thinking about. Because when the cornerstone is shooken or shaken, your whole of life is shaken as well. 
That's the reason it says, sentence 6, verse 6, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. You can build your life on any other cornerstone, but anything else, your career, your family, your bank balance, your looks, your fitness, your uh, expertise, if you build your life on anything else other than Jesus, it will be shaken and your life will fall, says 1 Peter. You'll feel like a failure. You'll be shaken to the core at some point in your life. But all of us have a cornerstone. Here's the second thing. It's not enough just to think that we already have one. Verse 7 says, if you want to get a power to live a changed life, you need to see verse 7. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. To you who believe, this stone is precious. It's not a Being a Christian is not just about believing in Jesus. It's not just about knowing Jesus. It's not just about uh, reading about Jesus or listening to someone talk about Jesus at church. Oh, I believe that Jesus died on the cross. Satan believes that. Satan knows that. He has to become precious to you. Now, what does that mean? Imagine you went to the doctor tomorrow and the doctor says you have an incurable disease, according to the NHS resources. But there's a new product on the market, but it's very expensive. and I cannot prescribe it to you unless you wanted to buy it yourself. Imagine that incurable disease, no normal resources, but there is a cure. But to get that cure, you'd have to raise significant resources. You'd have to sell the house in which you live. If you don't own your house, you'd have to sell the car which you drive or both. And only when you sold your house and only when you sold your car would you have sufficient resources to buy the cure for the incurable disease. I can't sell my house. It's very precious to me. I can't sell my car. How would I get to work? All those things fall in comparison when you see, I need to get that cure and I'll do whatever it takes. What good is my car if I'm, if I'm dead? What good is my house if, I's nowhere, if I don't need anywhere to sleep? That medicine is so precious to me that I will sell absolutely everything to get it. Imagine that. If you were to imagine that, and you got your hands on that cure, and you had renewed a newness of life, that would become so precious to you, then you begin to get a smell and a taste and a flavour of what this sentence means. To us, he is precious. He's not just a person, he's not just someone in history, he's not just a great teacher. Jesus, to the Christian, is precious because of who he is and because of what he's done. Jesus is precious. And if you don't see that, you're not yet a Christian. Jesus has to be more lovely to you than your house, more valuable to you than your car, greater to you than your looks. Whatever you want to compare him to, Jesus has to be more precious to you than than that. He has to be your cornerstone. Everything else in your life can be expendable, but Jesus too, a Christian, is precious. He's so precious. He's so precious. Well, you were so precious to him that he was willing to die for you. So he should be so precious to you that everything else will be treated as nothing. And when that happens, you come to him. He's your cornerstone. You start to live with all your values in alignment to him. You start to build your life upon him. You start to plan your future with with him as the center, not as the periphery. Jesus is not religious insurance. He's the cornerstone of our lives. And that means as we line ourselves up with him, Christians should not retreat 
and disengage with society. They should not aggressively go into society with hostility and crusade mentality. There should be a faithful presence. Why? Because of Jesus, sentence 21 to 25. Think of the centre activity of Christianity. It's not a crusade, people with swords. It's the Son of God dying for the sins of the world. He's not warring against his enemies. He's not attacking. He's not blending in, but he's serving the people around him by laying down his life. He's serving so that people would see the glory of his Father. He's serving so that people would hear the message of the good news and be rescued by him. What will stop us withdrawing? What will stop you and me getting angry at a world that in many areas is going to the dogs? What will stop us blending in and give us the confidence to stand? When you see him who is altogether lovely, when you see him who is precious, and then the church will be the church that God intends it to be. Let's pray.